Ah, uh, nuclear reactors. How many more problems could they possibly have? We depend on the integrity of the steel and concrete containment of nuclear reactors to keep deadly plutonium radiation away from people and the environment. Or at least that's what's supposed to happen. But then you hear about a relatively recently discovered problem with the concrete at the licensed until 2050, another 30 years, Seabrook Station nuclear reactor in New Hampshire. And then you learn... This problem of concrete cracking doesn't just move in one direction. He calls it opportunistic. So depending on where there's reinforcement, steel, and things like that, it could move in different directions. And the concern is, is that there, if there were an earthquake, it could weaken to the point not of maybe collapse, but to cause a radiological release into the environment and harming public health. Well, luck is a terrible safety plan when it comes to a nuclear reactor. And if that's what you are counting on to keep you safe for the next three decades of nuclear reactor operation, we're not even talking about the afterlife with the spent fuel pools, you are most definitely strapped into that awful, dangerous seat that we all share. Nuclear hot seat, what are those people thinking? Nuclear hot seat, what have those boys been drinking? Nuclear hot seat, the corium is sinking. Our time to act is shrinking, but our activists are linking. Nuclear hot seat, it's the bomb. Welcome to Nuclear Hot Seat, the weekly international news magazine keeping you up to date on all things nuclear from a different perspective. My name is Libby Halevi. I am the producer and host, as well as a survivor of the nuclear accident at Three Mile Island from just one mile away. So I know what can happen when those nuclear so-called experts get it wrong. This week, we learn about problems with concrete infrastructure decay at the Seabrook Station nuclear reactor in New Hampshire, only 40 miles north of Boston. We talk with Natalie Hild Treat of the Citizens Watchdog Group C10 about what's been discovered, what's been done or not done about it, and what it means for the aging reactor, which has already been licensed to operate until 2050. And we'll hear a moving statement from Ian Zabarte, principal man of the Western Shoshone bands of the Shoshone Nation of Indians. It's a message from the most bombed nation in the world. We will also have nuclear news from around the world, numbnuts of the week for outstanding nuclear boneheadedness, and more honest nuclear information than is making its way onto the U.S. campaign trail. All of it coming up in just a few moments. Today is Tuesday, September 22nd, 2020, and here is this week's nuclear news from a different perspective. Let's start with a bit of good news this week. Malta, a Mediterranean island country, completed the ratification process for the United Nations Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons as of Monday, September 21st, bringing the number of such countries and regions to 45, a total of 50 ratifications are required for the pact to enter into force. 
This latest ratification comes on the same day as the U.N. General Assembly held a ceremony marking the 75th anniversary of the world's body's founding. With the addition of this one more signatory, the International Campaign to Abolish Nuclear Weapons, or ICANN, hopes for an early enforcement of the pact, possibly by the end of this year. ICANN is the group that has strategized and promoted this treaty around the world, and for the work it received the Nobel Peace Prize in 2017. 45 down, 5 to go. We can do this. In Alaska, radioactive contamination from Japan's Fukushima Daiichi nuclear power plant triple meltdown from 2011 has drifted as far north as waters off a remote Alaska island in the Bering Straits. Analysis of seawater collected last year near St. Lawrence Island revealed an elevation in levels of radioactive cesium-137 attributable to the Fukushima disaster. This according to the University of Alaska Fairbanks Sea Grant Program. Gay Sheffield, a Sea Grant Marine Advisory Agent based in the Bering Sea town of Nome, Alaska, said this is the northern edge of the radiation plume. Fukushima-linked radionuclides have been found as far away as Pacific waters off the U.S. West Coast, British Columbia, and the Gulf of Alaska. The Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists is calling for aging nuclear plants to be given closer scrutiny, given the problems of climate change, and points to Turkey Point and Florida as why. Last December, two nuclear reactors at Florida's Turkey Point Nuclear Generating Station, 25 miles south of Miami, became the first reactors in the world to receive regulatory approval to remain operational for up to 80 years, meaning reactors that first came online in the 1970s could keep running beyond 2050. Think of how old those computers are. For background, The original 40-year projected life cycle of a nuclear reactor reflects engineering realities. Throughout the lifetime of a reactor, the metal and concrete that make up and contain the reactor take a constant beating from the neutrons being released through nuclear fission. This causes the metal to lose flexibility, become brittle, it's called embrittlement, and develop cracks and fissures. The concrete designed to protect humans and the environment from a radioactive release, may also deteriorate over time. And we will have more about this specific issue on today's featured interview. In Vermont, a proposed nuclear decommissioning bill carries big bonuses for the town of Vernon, which is the home of the remains of the Vermont Yankee nuclear power station. The bill proposed by Vermont's three-person congressional delegation concerning the decommissioning of nuclear power plants, would provide a stunning financial windfall for the town of Vernon. That's because it includes a standalone provision so that the town would receive an annual fee based on the tonnage of high-level nuclear waste now stored in town. Currently, that number stands at 1.2 million kilograms of high-level radioactive spent nuclear fuel. At a proposed payment of $15 per kilogram, that adds up to $18.5 million for Vernon per year. That's because they have to put up with the storage, the risks, and the dangers of radioactive waste from what is being touted by the industry as quote-unquote clean green energy, which it is neither. It was also never too cheap to meter, but that's another set of stories. 
Beyond Nuclear International has published another brilliant piece of writing by Linda Pence Gunter. It's entitled, Womankind Arise. And she starts by saying, As we mourn the passing of Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, we look back at her landmark victories against discrimination on the basis of sex and wonder how nuclear regulations might have stood up to her legal scrutiny. As things currently stand, the nuclear power industry gets away with allowable, in quotes, radiation exposure levels that discriminate against women. It's a terrific article, and we will link to it on the website, nuclearhotseat.com, under this episode, number 483. In Japan, the town of Sutsu in Hokkaido is considering applying for a two-year, $2 billion literature research grant into the possibility of storing high-level radioactive nuclear waste. The town's mayor, Haruo Katoka, said that the future of the town is financially precarious, but then quickly amended, financially precarious, I must stress, is by no means comparable to environmentally threatening. But what is in question is high-level radioactive nuclear waste that can be dangerous for at least 200,000 years, which is far beyond human experience and comprehension. We certainly cannot live to see what is going to become of nuclear waste, but I believe we do not want to leave the thorny problem unaddressed to haunt our future generation. In the village of Itate in Fukushima Prefecture, there are concerns about government plans to reuse radiologically contaminated soil from the Fukushima Daiichi nuclear disaster in local areas and plant crops on contaminated soil without adding a layer of uncontaminated soil. This project to farm on contaminated soil is slated to begin by March of 2021. And speaking of Japan's agricultural and food safety issues as regards the radiation from the Fukushima nuclear disaster, Nuclear hot seed, nuclear hot seed, nuclear hot seed, none that's out of week. In its ongoing struggles to erase all memory of the 2011 Fukushima nuclear disaster and resulting radiation contamination of the land in that prefecture, the prefecture itself has announced it's got a new high-quality rice it's going to be putting out on the market in an attempt to rebrand itself. The new brand, labeled Fukuwarai, which translates into luck, laugh, two words that one does not usually associate with Fukushima. The new rice is labeled as brimming with Fukushima pride, and it's meant to compete with the most luxurious rice strains in Japan. While anyone who disses Fukushima agricultural products is accused of being fear-mongering and being against the farmers of Fukushima, at the same time, there are ongoing citizen monitoring groups that are measuring food and the soil in the area for radioactivity. Some of these are referred to as grandma and grandpa labs, because those are the people who have transformed themselves into citizen scientists in order to determine whether the food they eat and the water they drink and the soil they grow things in is or is not radioactive. This is necessary because, keep in mind, radiation is measured officially as happening external to the body. But if you eat it, drink it, or inhale it, it becomes internal to the body and that much more deadly. So those officials who are pushing high-quality, rebranded rice from Fukushima, 
as the latest high-end luxury goods without providing measurements, data, and the impact of what that rice would do if there's any radioactivity in it and it gets inside a human body. All of you who are complicit in that, you are this week's Nuclear Hot Seed, none that's of the week. In Germany, a new report from the Forum for Ecological Social Market Economy, otherwise known as FOS, has toted up subsidies in excess of 287 billion euros to the nuclear industry since 1955 and has stated that there is no higher cost energy in the world. It states that development of the nuclear energy industry since the mid-1950s has led to costs of more than 287 billion euros since that time in cost to the German society and is wrongly portrayed as an inexpensive power source. FOS calculated the support, which includes both state support, power prices, and external costs, has been the most draining of all energy sources on the finances of the country, which is Europe's largest economy. According to Sanka Tangeman, chairman of independent power provider Greenpeace Energy, no other energy source has caused costs as high as those of risky atomic power, which even after 65 years continues to be highly uneconomical. At the same time, a new debate has started to build as regards supposedly cheap mini-nuclear reactors for power or hydrogen production. Again, this is the same thing that they were saying in the 1950s, quote-unquote, too cheap to meter. Ha! As regards these new mini-nukes, none of these have been built yet, and prices for construction of conventional new nuclear plants in countries like France or Finland have ballooned into amounts several times the original cost estimate. And this is what happens at nuclear facilities around the world. They cite a cost, they get started building, and then it just keeps multiplying, increasing, and taking longer and longer. When solar and wind are right there and ready to go. In Saskatchewan, a new nuclear secretariat has been mandated to develop and execute a strategic plan for the deployment of small modular nuclear reactors, which in every mention in the article that was sent out uses the word clean as an adjective when nuclear is not clean. Nuclear in Saskatchewan is not wanted by any of the indigenous people up there, and we covered this in our episode of Nuclear Hot Seat three weeks ago, number 480, in an interview with Candace Paul. Give a listen to learn why nukes in Saskatchewan is a really bad idea. And on a recent episode of Canadian Broadcasting's program, The House, Canada's Minister of Natural Resources, Seamus O'Regan, said about small nuclear reactors we have not seen a model where we can get to net zero emissions by 2050 without nuclear. To which David Suzuki, a scientist and environmental activist, was, was asked his response and he said, I want to puke. Because politicians love to say, oh yeah, we care about this and boy, there's nuclear technology just around the corner. My God, we need action now. That kind of nuclear development is decades away from becoming anything like the possibility to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. We've got to act now. We'll have this week's featured interview in just a moment. But first, there are so many issues begging for our attention and involvement these days. COVID-19, 
the U.S. presidential election, global warming influence changes around the world from wildfires, ice melt, extreme weather events, international warmongering, and I'm sure you've got your own personal list of issues that are to making demands on your time and attention, pulling at your heart and soul. It's hard to know where to look first, and nuclear is rarely at the top of the list. Yet, even if we defeat COVID, improve the financial well-being and health of the populace, even turn around global warming, the problems of the nuclear fuel cycle and the radioactivity it releases will remain virtually forever. That is why you need nuclear hot seat. We don't get distracted. We look at the nuclear aspect of the world every week in depth. Nuclear Hot Seat is the only podcast you can count on to report the ongoing, evolving nuclear truth that the industry would rather we not hear about, let alone understand. But financially, just as COVID has hit you hard, it has hit us really hard here, which makes your help to keep the show going more important than ever. That's why the time would be right now to support us with a donation. You can do it easily by going to NuclearHotSeat.com and clicking on the big red Donate button. That's where you can help us with a donation of any size. And that same button is now where you can set up a monthly $5, the same as a cup of coffee and a nice tip here in the U.S. So please, do what you can now to support the show. And know that however much you can help, I am deeply grateful that you're listening and that you care. Here's this week's featured interview. Seabrook Station Nuclear Power Plant in coastal New Hampshire faces an array of safety concerns related to the degraded concrete in key structures. Seabrook is the first U.S. plant known to be suffering from alkali silica reaction, or ASR, but experts believe it may well appear at other reactors. This puts in question the plant's ability to operate safely in the future and may place the public at greater risk of radiological exposure should Seabrook experience an accident, earthquake, or other emergency event. C-10, a citizens group concerned with safety at Seabrook, is pushing for stronger federal oversight and has been following the case of the degraded concrete at the nuclear plant since 2009. Without this group's intervening, concerns about what we see as inadequate testing, monitoring, and analysis of the nuclear plant's degraded concrete may never have seen the light of day. Our guest this week is Natalie Hild Treat. She became executive director of the C10 Foundation in February of 2017. Natalie previously served on C10's board of directors and has spent her career at the nexus of environmental and energy issues, public policy, and communications. She also walks her talk and lives with her family in an energy-efficient solar-powered home. We spoke on Thursday, September 10, 2020. Natalie Hilt-Treat, thank you so much for being my guest today on Nuclear Hot Seat. Thank you, Libby. It's great to be here. Let's start with a little bit about you. What is your background and what led you to take an activist stance when it comes to nuclear issues? Well, uh, if you go back to the beginning, my mom was active in local issues and ended up being a, a state representative in three of the Massachusetts communities bordering the Seabrook Station nuclear power plant. But before that time, when the plant went online in 1991, there was a lot of concern from citizens about the safety of the plant 
and how it would be possible to evacuate the communities in the plant's emergency planning zone. So, you know, my family was concerned about that from the beginning, and my mom was as a legislator. When I grew up, I I entered a career of environmental policy and communications, and I've done a, a lot of my work around energy efficiency. But I had become involved in C10 as a board member uh, about 10 or 15 years ago. And when I returned home to the area of Northeast Massachusetts and had a, a brand new baby and got tired of commuting, I kept running into the founding director of C10, which stands for Citizens Within the 10 Mile Radius, Sandra Gavutis. And I said, how are you? And she said, I'm tired. I'm ready to retire. And so things just happened sort of organically that I was able to come into this role as the executive director of the C10 Research and Education Foundation, known locally as C10. Explain a little bit about the work of C10, what its history is, and where it has been focused. C10 has been monitoring the radiation in the communities surrounding Seabrook Station, which is located on the New Hampshire seacoast, since the time the plant went online. They began testing in 1990 and commercial operations in 1991, I believe. And uh, since actually about 1992, we have had support from the Commonwealth of Massachusetts to operate a real-time radiological monitoring network. To our knowledge, we're the only group in the country, and one of the only ones in the world probably, that operates a citizen-run real-time monitoring network. And what that means is we have probes made by International Medcom out there, Dan Scythe in California, and he makes these probes that measure beta and gamma radiation, which can indicate when something might be going on at a nuclear plant or from a mobile source. So we measure radiation as well as wind speed and direction. And we do this in the communities surrounding Seabrook Station with near real-time data. So we will know if something is amiss. You know, radiation is a normal part of nuclear power operation. The plants are regulated and licensed to emit a little bit of these puffs, which they do. It's a fancy way to boil water. But if things go three times above normal background, we get text messages, um, and so do folks at the Massachusetts Department of Public Health and MEMA, the Emergency Management Agency. So we know. We don't communicate with the public, but it's up to the state to use that data to investigate what's going on. As we also do, we check with their resident nuclear regulatory commission inspectors at the plant. But this data is just another way of eyes and ears on the plant in ongoing operations and could be used in the event of an emergency. How often has there been elevated radiation reading from the plant that you then had to go to the state with? Periodically, there are what we call single station alerts. We have 12 stations. Uh, Most of them are in Massachusetts because that's where we've had state funding, a handful in New Hampshire, and we're working to change that. But we have one control in Somerville, which is down by Boston, uh, almost an hour away. And then the others are in the mass six cities and towns in Massachusetts. Periodically, one station will send off a single alert. Um, That could be by a mobile source or um, sometimes, you know, there's granite in buildings and that that sort of thing can send things spiking. There have been in my three and a half year tenure, a couple of incidences where beta levels have gone up and we get alerts. 
This could be because of normal venting of the plant. And for some reason, there's a little higher level, but we have very sensitive equipment. We actually had an incident last Thanksgiving, early in the morning in um, 2019, where a number of our stations were quite elevated. But upon investigating and talking to the Nuclear Regulatory Commission inspector at the plant, the wind was blowing from the west, the wrong direction from Seabrook. So, you know, there are other sources, as you know, of uh, radiation in the air and in the world. So in that time, in that case, it wasn't Seabrook. But again, we pick up this information. We could see spikes when there have been global nuclear disasters. And we would be able to tell we were the only outside of the fence of Seabrook Station, the only real-time monitoring. The federal government requires what's called TLDs or thermoluminescent dosimeters. They, they are like a little film strip that come down uh, off the telephone poles quarterly and they have cumulative data, but it's sort of a CYA kind of a reading, if you know what I mean. If there is an incident, they can see where the damage was. Sorry, that's cover your ass. Can you say that on podcast? Uh, yes, you can. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, you know, that's not, that's passive data. And so that, to actually be able to see what's happening in near, real time is valuable and could be able to help protect the public in the event of an emergency. Is this data available to the public in real time? Can they go to a website and pick it up? It is not per our contract with the Commonwealth of Mass. Um, It says the data is available upon request. We do issue monthly reports. They're usually pretty boring, some graphs. Occasionally you'll see several of them stacked up and there are slight blips up at the same moment in time. But, you know, that is always a point of negotiation with our state funders. They don't want people sitting there and looking at a map with colors changing and, and, and going, oh my gosh, what's happening without you know the information behind it. So that's above our pay grade. That's for the Commonwealth to decide if they're going to use that information. There's thankfully never been a serious incident. But that leads me to the other part of C10's work, which is to work as a watchdog on safety and regulatory issues. C10 has been around since the early 90s, and in that time, we have tracked and helped to uncover and bring to light a number of serious issues. The most pressing that we've been dealing with is related to a condition called alkali silico reaction, or ASR. And Seabrook is the first nuclear power plant in the U.S., known to be suffering from a serious concrete degradation problem. It's a mismatch of the aggregate and the concrete that creates, in the presence of moisture, of water, a gel. And that gel creates little cracks and larger cracks. So this condition of ASR was uncovered about 10 years ago by Debbie Grinnell, one of our researchers who began digging around in, in regulatory filings in 2010. And in 2016, Nextera Energy Seabrook, uh, the plant owner, filed what's called a license amendment request, basically saying, we're aware of this problem. You know, they put together a study protocol and a, a plan to manage the concrete and how it's reacting and, and how safe it is. What is the danger that's represented by this kind of degradation, this ASR? The danger may not be imminent, but it is a pernicious and slow problem that happens. I've learned a lot about concrete in the last few years. Concrete actually cures from the outside in, and so it, it's more damp in the in the middle. And it also, I mean, the oldest concrete was poured 
in the 1980s. And so some of that, which is in an electric tunnel deep underground, which I actually had the chance to tour and see with my own eyes last summer, it's cracks. And while the concrete is is a few feet thick, this concrete cracking ultimately can weaken the, the structural integrity of key components like the core reactor dome. And the issue is that Seabrook had to submit with this license amendment request. They had to say that even though the plant wasn't designed with this, it will withstand what's called a design basis earthquake. So these plants have to be structurally sound enough to, to deal with this. You know, ASR, alkali silica reaction, wasn't known as a problem when these nuclear plants were built. And so there's no regulation in the U.S. for, for the NRC of how to deal with this. This is the first one. But just to jump quickly, we have the world's leading expert in ASR, who's at Colorado University at Boulder, Dr. Victor Sauma. And he found us and has been working with us pro bono for two years because he's concerned that the, the testing and monitoring that Seabrook was able to submit and ultimately got this license amendment request and their license extension another 20 years all the way to 2050 because their current operating license goes to 2030. He didn't think it was good enough. We started with this case before we had an expert, but he came on board and helped us to make the case. And so that's where we are now. In August 21st of 2020, this summer, um, we just had a ruling in this case that we brought to the Atomic Safety and Licensing Board, a board, a, a panel of, of the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, where we challenged Seabrook's concrete aging management and the representativeness of tests done at a lab in Texas to stand in for what's happening at the salt marsh in New Hampshire. Explain about this disconnect between it's happening in New Hampshire, but they're testing in Texas? Well, you know, this is the first ever plant that has this problem. So when they uncovered it, they had to do their own testing and they found a lab in Texas to do some accelerated tests and purpose-formed concrete and sort of demonstrate how they thought the concrete was acting and would behave in the future. But our expert, Dr. Sauma, comes at it not from a strictly engineering point of view, but as a concrete materials scientist. So he has both types of understanding. To really be able to see how, not only how, how um, is the concrete now, but how might it perform? How can you model that on a computer? This problem of concrete cracking doesn't just move in one direction. He calls it opportunistic. So depending on where there's reinforcement, steel, and things like that, it could move in different directions. And the concern is, is that there, if there were an earthquake, it could weaken to the point not of maybe collapse, but to cause a radiological release into the environment and harming public health. I read in your materials that the concrete is only required to be examined at a nuclear facility once every 10 years. Is this standard operating procedure across the industry? Was this just specific up at Seabrook? I think that that might have had to do with the specific license amendment request that the NRC signed off on uh, about a year and a half ago. But it is more complicated, and they do do more frequent different types of testing and monitoring. They, they are taking core samples of the concrete. They are measuring surface-level cracks 
But all of this, our expert has said, you know, isn't isn't enough and isn't sufficient. So ultimately, so we challenged this issue. We brought Victor Sama, our expert, on board. Last September in Newburyport, Mass, in the City Hall, we had a week-long public hearing. The public had the chance to weigh in, and there were three judges from the Atomic Safety Licensing Board that came, and we had our one expert, and there was probably a dozen experts from NextEra and NRC combined. And when I say combined, not just together, but they, they literally, they seem to be in lockstep, you know, in terms of where they're coming. Here we have a small citizens group working to protect our community and a pro bono world-renowned expert. And the judges, I will say, were very interested and concerned to hear what our expert was bringing. They were supposed to rule in this case last January and then April. And then July, so finally, they kept giving themselves these extensions. You know, a few weeks ago, they ruled 200-page document. Ultimately, they granted Nextera. They sided with them and said, okay, your plan is okay, but with these important conditions. And they placed six conditions on them in terms of the way that they're going to do the testing and monitoring. What are those six conditions? You know, it's interesting, just a few minutes ago, the public version of this order has come out, but they have to do with the the frequency of certain types of testing and monitoring, of whether things really are at a certain accelerated rate, whether they have to come up with new plans to do certain types of testing and monitoring. It was intended by the judges you know, they basically said, we don't have confidence that this is enough to protect the public. So they wanted to do more. With that, our expert, Dr. Salma, looked at it and said, well, these are good, but Frank, no disrespect to the judges, they're not experts in concrete material sciences. And he is. So what we did with our attorney, Diane Curran, who's a nationally known, wonderful nuclear safety environmental attorney, she has been working with us and she and Victor quickly had to do some legal gymnastics to try to reopen the case and and say why we, um, you know, submit some supplemental testimony as guidance, basically, of how they could tighten up these conditions so that they will do what we think the judges wanted them to do to protect the public. For example, petrography is the study of rocks. And, you know, they say they have to do a petrographic analysis. But what does that mean exactly? You know, what, what specific measurable guidance could be used to tighten this up? So we submitted, Victor and Diane submitted some comments. Just today, a few minutes ago, we saw both Nextera and the staff of the NRC whose mission, of course, is to protect people in the environment. They have been beating us down most of the way here. And again, they're, they've sided with the the, uh, the licensee, Nextera, and they're objecting to us having this supplemental testimony that we see would only strengthen the way that they're dealing with this problem. We say, okay, fine. They got their win. They're, they got to keep you know, their concrete management, and we got to win for the public. We're trying to make it even stronger so that it does what the judges say. So it will be some more weeks till we know how the dust settles. But even so, for us, it's a huge victory to even bring these issues to light that have never been seen. And this is going to influence, no doubt, the way ASR is handled in other nuclear plants. It has happened. There have been plants in Canada and France, and I think Japan as well, where it has been found and it has been a factor of 
closure, economic factor of, of dealing with this. So our work is going to really be influencing ASR policy for the country. And we're proud of that. And we're proud to have shown a light and we will keep working on this issue for Seabrook. I've been doing this show for over nine years now every week, and this is the first time I have heard of this specific issue coming up. So I thank you for the outreach on that. How has this been dealt with by the media? Have you been getting coverage on it, and has it been favorable to C10 and (laughs) what you are attempting to do for the citizens and for safety of nuclear power plants? Um, well, as you know, there's a lot of major issues <laughs> facing the media right now, as as well as cutbacks in, in their, their budgets and their staff. But yes, I mean, I would say especially a, a group of local papers in the Newburyport and Gloucester, Massachusetts area have paid a lot of attention to this issue. They've covered the week-long hearing. Some of our public radio stations, Boston's WBUR, New Hampshire Public Radio, have covered it. A little bit with the globe, we're trying to, um, you know, show them that this isn't just a procedural thing, that this is really something that affects public safety. And it's a major story to have a small, largely citizen-run group and a world-leading expert to bring this issue out. You know, we're not doing this for financial gain. We're doing this because we live here. Victor's doing it because he believes in good science. So our work will go on. As I mentioned earlier, a lot of our work comes through the radiological monitoring network. States are in really dire situation right now. We don't have a state budget in Massachusetts. And so we are committed to keeping going forward. We believe we have shown it's more important than ever to have independent eyes watching over government um, agencies and industry, especially in the nuclear industry. And so that's going to be our challenge to keep going and to keep watching. Are they doing what they say they're going to be doing? First to fight to strengthen this as much as we can, but then to keep doing the work of regulatory digging and and contacting our experts and trying to um, hold their feet to the fire so that the maximum safety is ensured. That's a lot on your plate. Where does it go from here? We are, as I said, a small group. We're not really in the financial position to appeal this ruling. So what we chose to do instead is to try to strengthen it. We will see how the judges come down. They have our bid. They have the opportunity to incorporate that. I mean, I will say again, once this public ruling is out, you can share it. It came out today, but we're gonna, I'm going to create a summary piece on it. It's 200 pages. But anybody who looks at it will see, even though ultimately they sided with the licensee Nextera, multiple times they admitted the the validity of what our experts said. Multiple times they struck down what's called a motion in limine, a legal chance for the, the plant to get our feet kicked out from under us. And they gave us our due. Um, so, you know, now is we think that they kind of were threading a needle, this licensing board, to say, okay, you can keep your keep your plan, but we're going to strengthen it. And we hope that they will strengthen it further because our expert isn't convinced that it's enough to keep the public safe. Now, shifting this just slightly, you have a real-time monitoring system, which is something mm-hmm. that every nuclear reactor needs to be surrounded by. I know that that was one of the things that was being fought for down at San Onofre and never got included. And we still need it down there. After Three Mile Island, Jimmy Carter had a panel that recommended that be the case. Yeah. And it never went through. Mm -mm. In Europe, it's different. There are more real-time monitoring, but not in the U.S. outside the plants. Nope. 
They also use casks and concrete containment for nuclear fuel rods that are 20 inches thick as opposed to San Onofre, which is five-eighths of an inch. So they are much more conscious of safety and the need for it in other countries. Here it seems to be about the bottom line and can we get out with the greatest amount of money. But in terms of a real-time monitoring system, is there a way that you could guide or perhaps assist or consult with any group anywhere in the country or elsewhere outside of the United States that would want to create this thing and perhaps give them some steps to take in the process of trying to institute this? That's a good question. And actually, after the Fukushima accident, folks came from a group called SafeCast, which you might have heard of. And yes, they I came do. to C10 mm-hmm. and they learned about our citizens monitoring network and they work to build their, their network is a little bit different and more truly grassroots and citizen, you know, free open source sort of software and maps and all that. But some of our old probes were sent back to International MedCom in California and um, repurposed and sent over to Fukushima. So yeah, I mean, when I've talked to um, other folks, they said, well, there are a few other real-time monitoring networks that are operated by utilities or plants around the country, but to our knowledge, we're the only citizen-run one. It was just a, I think the tenacity of the founders of our group and that they had this idea, they started with handheld monitors and then they had floppy disks they were running around and collecting the data. And now we have old laptops that we're trying to replace with these small computers. It's called an e-box that will have an automatic restart if the power goes out. We can't afford solar backup yet. So we're, we're working on it. And we definitely, we would love to be a resource to other groups, other citizens groups in particular, that want to learn from this. You know, a lot of people have asked over the years, and I asked when I came to C10 in 2017, well, what did the data show? And sadly, we haven't had much budget to look into the data a lot. I mean, you think, well, what does it show in terms of uh, cancer rates, right, around nuclear plants and things like that? That is something that is up to the public health agencies to do, or if we had an amazing grant funder to look at this and say, we do work with a meteorologist called Sam Miller. He's terrific. He's from Plymouth State in New Hampshire, and he helped us. He's, he's done some plume modeling um, to, to look at our data and also to help us figure out where to put our monitoring stations for maximum coverage. But basically, our data is, we, we do have almost 30 years of data, and we would love to be able to look into it more. But, but really, it's about the watchfulness and, and what would happen if there were an incident. I've heard repeatedly that there are spikes in radiation that take place during refueling when the rods are actually pulled out. And that, that's hidden by the Nuclear Regulatory Commission because what they do is they average the amount of radiation that comes out from a nuclear facility over the course of a year when truly the spike is happening in the approximately 36 hours or so that the rods are taken out and the new ones are put in. Yeah. Well, we did look at our data. This, this, so Seabrook Station in New Hampshire was the first plant in the country to go through a refueling and maintenance period starting in April when COVID was on. So we were really concerned about that. And we, just to answer that question, we didn't pick up noticeable spikes in our monitoring at that point. But we were looking at things like what's going on with worker safety as you have over a thousand extra guys going in and out where are they staying where are they traveling you hear about these roving bands of workers you know you heard about the 
horror stories in Limerick, Pennsylvania plant where there was COVID. And, you know, so those are that we're trying to get answers on what's happening with extended hours being required if, if they would need to work longer if people get sick. So at the beginning of the COVID crisis, this show covered the connection. And I was like adding up the numbers for the number of workers at different locations. And shortly after I did a special on that, towards the end of March, the NRC came out with their announcement that they were no longer going to be providing the numbers of workers or any information about what was happening with COVID inside the facilities. I can't claim responsibility for that, but at the same time, the entire source of information dried up. The only numbers we get now are from Vogel, Plant Vogel down in Georgia, which is a construction site. It's not yet an operating site, so the NRC doesn't have control over that. They've had more than 800 cases. Wow. Well, you know, what the NRC said on these calls where they were talking about COVID and, and all, it's sort of like, well, that's not our, our issue is nuclear safety. So those are OSHA issues, you know. That, and then I would try to call the local town managers. Have you heard anything about cases? No, but I don't bet they wouldn't tell us, you know, or I try to call the state emergency management or public health. Nope, talk to the plant. What does the plant say? Well, we're following best practices. Well, when I did talk to the resident inspector of the NRC, he actually gave me some reassurance that they were really doing some good things and it wasn't a horror story. But why doesn't the plant give a little more to the, the, the public? You know, they, they just give these pat answers. So I think there's a lot more that could be done probably, I know with our plant, to build trust with the community by, by being a little more transparent. So that's what we're trying to do at C10, shine a light. <laughs> Is there anything else that we haven't covered? Well, I think living through a pandemic, many of us have a new appreciation of government's role in keeping us safe, but we've also seen the importance of independent watchdogs to make sure that they do their job, that there's accountability. And so C10 is is really proud of that our efforts have helped to improve how Seabrook is managing its aging concrete. And also, as I mentioned, the impact that this will have in future federal regulations surrounding this problem. But for us, you know, our work is not done. We need to keep the monitoring going. Uh, we need to stay focused on other safety issues that come up, such as deferred maintenance that happened as a result of COVID. And so we really rely on the support of people who care in our communities. And frankly, nationally, we've got some, some national support from individuals as well as um, increasingly seeking foundation support. There's not a lot of foundations that support nuclear safety per, per se. But I, I would just urge your listeners to visit c10.org, that's c-10.org, to learn more about our work in the New Hampshire Seacoast area. There's about 160,000 people that live in the 23 cities and towns in Seabrook Station's emergency planning zone, and many more from Boston to Concord to Portland, all in the ingestion exposure pathway that would be affected if something went wrong. So these are the people, you know, our members, our supporters, and the public that we're working to help protect this beautiful part of the country um, to keep it livable for future generations. And so we're going to be doing this work for as long as Seabrook is operational and beyond. And so we just need to keep engaging people to pay attention, to support groups like C10. So I hope people will take a look at c10.org and maybe sign up for our newsletter and learn more and give if they can. 
We will also link to your materials on our website, nuclearhotseat.com, under this episode, and do what we can to promote the work that you do, because I think this is a new angle, a new, if not a new idea, it is good to know that somebody has made this work, some group has made this work. And that's a model that deserves to be shared because we need to share our successes so that they can be duplicated elsewhere. That's right. Yeah. And I I haven't even mentioned our excitement that we are are expanding in New Hampshire. We have had a scant few stations privately funded and there is a uh, citizens initiative to expand radiological monitoring in New Hampshire led by a state rep in New Hampshire called Peter Somsich. And he has helped raise um, money for so that we can add two new stations and help support the existing stations. That's phase one. Either we're we're hoping to roll out this fall. So so there there is good movement. Um, as you know, nuclear power is forever. So we're going to do all that we can to make sure it's as safe as it can be, as long as it's around. And of course, it's always going to be around. Natalie, you are Natalie Hild Treat. You're doing great work. You're having successes. I really appreciate your clarity and your succinctness and the power of what you have just shared and for being my guest this week on Nuclear Hot Seat. Thank you, Libby. It was a real pleasure, and I look forward to hopefully joining you in the future. Thanks, everybody, for listening. That was Natalie Hild Treat, Executive Director of the C10 Foundation, keeping a sharp and critical eye on the Seabrook Station Nuclear Power Facility in New Hampshire. You can learn more at the C10 website, C, that's the letter C, dash 10, the number 10, dot org. If you'd like to know more about SafeCast, the international volunteer-centered organization that Natalie spoke about, it's devoted to open citizen science for the environment. On the website for this episode, we will link to an interview we had with one of its founders, Sean Bonner, for Nuclear Hot Seat number 349 from February 27, 2018. Here is a second piece, an audio that was not an interview, but was recorded by Ian Zabarte. He is principal man of the Western Bands of the Shoshone Nation of Indians and a board member of the Native Community Action Council. He wrote and recorded a piece entitled, A Message from the Most Bombed Nation on Earth. It was recently carried by Al Jazeera and it deserves far wider distribution. I mentioned it on the show a few weeks ago, but found it so moving that when I discovered that Ian had recorded himself reading it, I had to share. This is his message from the most bombed nation on earth. You never know what's killing you when it's done in secret. Every family here is affected. We've seen mental and physical retardation, leukemia, childhood leukemia, all sorts of cancers. My name is Ian Zabarti and I'm principal man of the Western Bands of the Shoshone Nation of Indians, the most bombed nation on earth. Our country is approximately 40,000 square miles, just west of Las Vegas in Nevada, all the way to the Snake River in Idaho. We've been on this land at least 10,000 years. Our relationship to the United States is based upon the Treaty of Ruby Valley, signed in 1863. In the treaty, the Shoshone continued to own the land, but we agreed that in exchange for $5,000 a year for 20 years, the United States could establish military posts on it. But shortly before the end of World War II, We started to be overrun by the United States military industrial complex in ways we are only just beginning to understand. Then, in 1951, 
The United States established the Nevada Proving Grounds on Shoshone territory and began testing nuclear weapons without our consent or knowledge. On January 27, 1951, the first nuclear test took place on our lands when a one kiloton bomb was dropped from a plane flying over it. Over the next 40 years, more than 900 nuclear tests took place on Shoshone territory, 100 in the atmosphere and more than 800 underground. When the U.S. dropped an atomic bomb on Hiroshima in 1945, 13 kilotons of nuclear fallout rained down on the Japanese city. But according to one study, between 1951 and 1992, the tests conducted on our land caused 620 kilotons of nuclear fallout. When the fallout came down, it was Native American communities living downwind from the site who were most exposed. We consumed contaminated wildlife, drank contaminated milk, lived off of contaminated land. For Native American adults, the risk of exposure has been shown to be 15 times greater than for other Americans. For young people, that increased to 30 times, and for babies, it can be as much as 50 times greater. As a result, we have watched our people die. For almost 70 years, we have been suffering from this silent killer, and the United States government's culture of secrecy has kept it silent. But we are beginning to understand what has happened to us. We obtained documents that were declassified in the 1990s, but there are almost 2 million pages. Trying to understand all of this is daunting, but we are doing that work alone and without funding or support. In every part of the world where there have been nuclear catastrophes or nuclear testing, there are health registries to monitor those who have been exposed. We don't have that here in the United States, and we need it. We cannot wait any longer for the health disparities we are experiencing to be identified. We continue to endure, and we live with the understanding that the radiation is there on the ground. It is there in our plants, in our animals, and inside of our people. Killing Shoshone people was never part of the treaty we signed. Our people would never have engaged in something that would result in our own destruction. Our custom is sharing, but when all you have is a hammer, everything is a nail. And that is what the U.S. military has been doing, hammering the Shoshone with bombs. That was Ian Zabarte, principal man of the Western Bands of the Shoshone Nation of Indians and a board member of the Native Community Action Council. We'll have the video of this important statement up on our website, NuclearHotSeat.com, under this episode, number 483. Activists, Activists shout, out, shout out, shout out, shout out. It is again time this year for Keep Space for Peace Week. October 3 through 10 will be an international week of protest to stop the militarization of space. This is put forth by the Global Network Against Weapons and Nuclear Power in Space. The focus this year is the defunding of Space Force. In the midst of a global pandemic, the U.S. and others have undertaken the creation of Space Force, making space the world's newest war-fighting domain. The White House has allocated $15 billion for Space Force in this year's budget. But what we propose is that instead of creating a new arms race in space, we should reinvest in and improve social programs and protect the natural environment of our fragile planet Earth, particularly by responding to the growing climate crisis. There will be a series of 
programs and seminars and things with which you can get involved. You can find out more by going to spaceforpeace.org. And that's the number for spaceforpeace.org. Of course, we'll have a link up on the website. This has been Nuclear Hot Seat for Tuesday, September 22nd, 2020. Material for this week's show has been researched and compiled from nuclear-news.net, deunrenard.wordpress.com, Beyond Nuclear International, the International Campaign for the Abolition of Nuclear Weapons, aljazeera.com, spaceforpeace.org, thebulletin.org, voanews.com, reformer.com, nbcnews.com, asahi.com, ntv.co.jp, japantimes.co.jp, npr.org, American Anthropologist, nationalobserver.com, cbc.ca, rechargenews.com, and of course, the ever-co-opted Nuclear Regulatory Commission. Our thanks once again this week to Bruce Brinkman for his help with capturing the audio from Ian Zabarte's video. Hey, my birthday is coming up next week, and you know what I'd like as a gift? Some help with the show. Anything from people coming and joining a wonderful small group that we have that post the show each week on social media, to helping me get up to speed on video, to the possibility of producing an on-air report on nuclear issues of importance to you. So if you've got a little bit of time that you could spare, stop curling fetal on the floor and send an email to info at nuclearhotseat.com. I'll get back to you. We'll work something out for the time that you have available. Thanks to all of you for listening, and a big shout out to Nuclear Hot Seat listeners and followers who are literally around the world, in 123 countries, on six continents, and counting. We also have our broadcast listeners who are listening through the Pacifica Audio Port Network, and we welcome you as well. To make certain you don't miss out on a single episode of Nuclear Hot Seat, You can sign up for our email list. We don't bug you. It's just one a week with the connection to the show. Do that by going to NuclearHotSeat.com. Scroll down to the yellow box. Fill in the tiny bit of information we require. And we will get the show to you as soon as it posts. Now, we really are dependent on getting information from listeners about what's happening in the nuclear world that you see up close and personal in front of you. So if you have a story lead, a hot tip, or a suggestion of someone to interview, I mean it. Send an email to info at nuclearhotseat.com. And if you appreciate verifiable news updates on nuclear issues around the world, go to nuclearhotseat.com. There's that red button there. Click on it. It will tell you what to do. And know that we appreciate any support you're capable of giving. This is Libby Halevi of Heartistry Communications, the heart of the art of communicating, Reminding you, luck is a terrible safety plan when it comes to a nuclear reactor. There you go. You have just had your nuclear wake-up call. So don't go back to sleep, because we are all in the nuclear hot seat. Nuclear hot seat, what are those people thinking? Nuclear hot seat, what have those boys been drinking? Nuclear hot seat, the corium is sinking. Our time to act is shrinking, but our activists are linking. Nuclear hot seat, it's the bomb.